Welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. I'm your host, Ian Bukta, and it's just me this week, at least for the intro here. Before we get into the meat of this episode, I just wanted to let y'all know that this episode has some heavy parts in it, including some discussions of suicide. So I just wanted to give you all fair warning. However, it's a really interesting discussion on, po- on global health that was really thought-provoking for me. All right, I'm going to pass it over to Steve, who began our interview with Dr. Nanda Kishore with this intro. Hello all, this is From the Front Row with your hosts Ian Bukta and Steve Sanye. We're here today with Dr. Nanda Kishore Kanuri. Dr. Kanuri is out here from Hyderabad, India. He obtained his PhD in Medical Anthropology and Cultural Psychiatry from the University College London in the United Kingdom. He currently serves as an Associate Professor at the Indian Institute of Public Health in Hyderabad and is an Assistant Editor for the Anthropology and Medicine Journal. Welcome to the show, Dr. Kanuri. It sounds like you spent a lot of time working on health equity in lower and middle income countries. Your 2014 thesis looks a lot into rural distress and the mental health condition of cotton farmers in Telangana. Can you elaborate on what helped you decide on this as your thesis topic? That's a good starting question. <laughs> uh, as I said, I'm an anthropologist by training and I've been working in public health for some time now. It's been 20 years now after my master's in MPhil in anthropology. I started my career in development, working for NGOs, largely local NGOs and international NGOs, and started my work uh, with a Washington uh, DC based NGO called International Center for Research on Women. And uh, what set me my interest in public health and social and cultural determinants was the first project which I did on intimate partner violence, HIV, AIDS and uh, stigma. So as, a, as an anthropologist, my interest was into the social and cultural issues and I've been wor- I was uh, working in development sector for about 10 years, largely in social and cultural issues around HIV, AIDS, tuberculosis and uh, gender and nutrition. So that in that process, I had traveled widely across uh, my state and also in India. And uh, La- India is a majority of a rural community. You have 60% of them. It's decreasing a bit, but most of them are dependent on agriculture and farming and allied industries for their livelihood. And one phenomenon which was which struck me was uh, increasing incidence of farmers committing suicide. And whilst I was working for the development sector, I had interacted closely with community-based organizations, working in the rural areas, trying to help develop empowerment among the rural communities, both among men and women, and also try and have health equity as one of the important goals. So. Farmer suicides is, I thought, is an important public health problem, which not many were addressing it, whether it be policymakers or social scientists or, you know, even public health professionals. So, and uh, I felt it's an important topic which actually provides a interface between different disciplines and different fields, such as social sciences, public health and policy studies and all that. So... And that actually motivated me to pick farmer suicide for my thesis. Wow, that's really incredible and a really good background into the reasoning behind it. 
and kind of bringing to light this really important cultural and public health problem as a whole. Sure. Um, so if you don't mind me going a little bit further with this, at the time you were writing your thesis and collecting the data, you're acting as a doctoral student and not a government representative. But as a public health professional, can you talk about the difficulties in establishing connections with the farming community? Sure. That's, I think, uh, one of the difficult part was to make a connection with the communities with with whom you're engaging in. But as an anthropologist, I'm trained in ethnography and as a person who's trained in ethnography has to live for an extended period of time with the community. So for my thesis, I was living with a farmer's family with a village which is largely agricultural and which has experienced quite a number of suicides within the village. So I lived there for a year and worked as a farmhand sometimes and actually that got me connected with the community and also helped me gain their trust. And and suicide is something very personal and it's a very difficult topic and very traumatic topic for the survivors of the family. And uh, being with them, talking to them, having spent time with them closely, walking with them to the fields and helping them sometimes was something which actually helped both of us, both the community and myself to have developed that sort of a comfort and sort of connect so that they can share their personal narratives and stories. Yeah, I think that what you highlight of just building that connection is just so important, especially, you know, as you mentioned, on a topic like suicide that just no one wants to have to talk about, sure. especially if it was a, a child or their parent, you know, their loss, their life being lost to it. So that's that's a great point that you raise. And this is kind of building off of that, too. On a final note for your thesis, what are some ways that a medical anthropology perspective can improve a public health intervention? That's a big question because... Uh, In India, public health as a discipline is a very nascent discipline. It's just about 10 years now. I think masters in public health started as an academic, a serious academic uh, uh, discipline. But anthropology has been there for some time. And uh, as a medical anthropologist, uh, one of the important areas of our training was to look at the linkages between the culture, health, disease, illness, and medicine, you know, related in a very equitable way to try and unpack these intricacies between the interlinks. So usually biomedicine is something which, in a hierarchy, which gains precedence. But as a medical anthropologist, you look at it from the people's perspective. What do they think of a health, illness, and disease? And the public health is also something very similar. You work with the communities. It's not an individual personal health, but it is a community's health. And you work with the local communities. And it's important that we understand what the communities feel about the health, illness, and disease, and uh, sickness. And a lot of terms which do not conform to the biomedical way of defining the health and what the community... And anthropologists, I feel, can get both these sort of uh, spears into talking to each other. And that's where I think uh, my training in anthropology helped me to try and get this perspective in public health, trying to value the community's perspectives on health, illness, and disease and public health. 
That's a really good point too, and I enjoy that aspect of meeting people where they are is something that I've heard a lot in my public health background too, and it seems that you're able to really embody that, especially in your research and going there and working and living among these people to kind of talk about, like Ian mentioned, this very difficult subject of suicide and kind of bringing light to that issue. Sure. Um, you have a recent case study out on the girls in the cottonseed fields that likewise kind of builds off your thesis. One image that really stuck out to me was that you've got young women who are removing cotton petals and they're having to put bottle caps over their thumbs to complete this work. Can you talk about the reasons what this work is designated to younger women and kind of the impact of those narratives on these younger women a little bit? I would say it's young girls, uh, not young women. It's largely 8 to 14 years. Young adolescent girls is the age group. Uh, and cotton is one of the important cash crops in India. And my thesis was also focusing for my PhD was in cotton farmers, suicides among cotton farmers. But as Ian said, it's grim and it's difficult. And as a researcher and also as a human being, you know, it was very difficult for me to continue my engagement with the issue of suicide. And it, I have seen personally, whilst I was in the field, you know, two farmers committing suicide and that really you know was difficult for me to even luckily I had a good supervisor who was also a psychiatrist and a medical anthropologist based at UCL Dr. Sushir Jadav and we used to have a regular debriefing and it helped me you know being sane to finish my work but one of the things which also struck me was you know how do you deal with this larger structural and uh, political and ecological issues and then how do you persist with these communities and in the process I thought I should work with the next generation of young adults and young young children who are working in agriculture. So whilst I was exploring this uh, area of young students, young children working in this and what struck me was very close by to the place where I work, Hyderabad is a, a capital city of the Telangana state where I live and is one of the happening places for Amazon, Google, IBM. All of them have big offices there. Amazon, I think, has the largest office in Hyderabad outside the U.S. And the place where I'm working with the Cottonseed Girls is just about 130 kilometers. I don't know what's it in miles, but it's not very far. And the inequity is starkly visible. You could see that the development indicators are quite low. And these girls are working whilst they should be studying and whilst they should be having aspirations for a better life in future, they are working for hours together in this cotton seed industry. And as I said, cotton is one of the you know important cash crops in India and uh, cotton seed industry is controlled by the large cotton you know uh, seed industries within the US such as Monsanto, which through their collaborators uh, in India, they have these hybrid seed companies and the process is very interesting where you know naturally it's the bees and the insects which does the pollination but it's not as efficient as the companies want you know they want it to be make it more sure so what they do is that they hire young girls who are of pre-pubertal age and they're largely within 18 14 years and uh, because of the nimble fingers they can get the crossing done. This crossing is again a pollination. They get the male and female parts of the flower and then they manually do it for hours together 
bending their bodies and they hurting their nails but in the process they are missing the school all the social development you know milestones they would be missing they'll be missing the school they'll be exposed to pesticides they are exposed to insects sun snakes and also men you know sometimes exploit them so it's a while i was trying to look at this you know, hopeful scenarios for the children but i thought this is something which struck me that very young age very tender girls are got into this and it's something which not much of attention is being paid though there are some civil society organizations which have invested their time and energy in making their lives better but ultimately it is still continuing and the big players want it to continue unfortunately so you you already started elaborating on some of these problematic parts of cotton cultivation uh one other one is pesticide exposure mm-hmm. we know that these chemicals have potential long-term consequences but many workers don't really know uh even as they're working with them are there resources for informing these workers about pesticide exposure problems are there ways to reduce it through like pro- personal protective equipment or other strategies one of the important issues is exposure pesticides and cotton consumes a massive amount of pesticides and chemicals and insecticides and also weedicides name the chemicals though cotton is about 5 to 7% of the total agricultural share of india but it consumes about 50% of pesticides and insecticides used and to address that i think globally there's been pushed towards uh, genetically modified uh, cotton like something called bt cotton whereas a gene from the soil bacteria bacillus thuringiensis is got into is put into this cotton and then it acts as uh, a toxic substance for the pink ball worm is one of the important pests uh, but that unfortunately nature is more resilient more stronger and it uh, most of these insects grow their resistance to these toxic chemicals or the toxic substances that bd cotton produces so though there was an effort to reduce the pesticides usage and uh, because of other pests and also the resistance of the bt uh, cotton to the pink pink bollworm growing resistant so farmers are forced to use a large amount of uh, pesticides and unfortunately in indian context is not much of awareness nor regulation on the types of pesticides used the quantity of pesticides used and the combination of pesticides used and and that actually also links back to the systemic failure where india policy makers did not emphasize the uh, strengthening of the agriculture extension services where that's actually the problem and then that pesticide exposure is a major problem and as you rightly put you know many of them are unaware of the consequences but but majority of the farmers young farmers these days are aware that pesticides are harmful but it's also something which they resign to the fact that there's no alternative there's no option for these small farmers and i should uh, tell you that most of the indian farmers majority of them are small farmers and marginal farmers having land holdings somewhere between between 1 uh, to 3 or 4 hectares they are very small farmers and it's a family as a unit which works and it's not as mechanized as it's in, you know in developed nations so 
most of these farmers do this praying and exposure is high and there's not much of knowledge on the precautions and the safety measures one has to take. And that also links to the perception related to being healthy and also safeguarding one's health versus having to get a living. So it's a difficult situation where the farmer, knowing that pesticides are harmful, puts his or her livelihood as an important aspect rather than the exposure and the possible consequences it could have at a later stages in life. So I think that's something which is important, which determines the farmer's willingness to take up the safety measures. And unfortunately, not much of uh, thrust is also on uh, educating the farmers about the safety measures and the protective gear and all that stuff. So it's a long way to go. Yeah, it sounds like there is a, a kind of a thin line between personal safety and productivity mm-hmm. that these individuals are facing back home. Um, kind of building off of this too, one thing we like to ask people is, what is one thing that you thought you knew but were later wrong about? What happens in this kind of cultural context while you're going through these things in your thesis and kind mm-hmm. of beyond? That's an interesting question, I think. Um most of us academicians, I think, we have our own set of assumptions and uh, ideas before we go to the field. And uh, I think uh, one of the important uh, issue that struck me, you know, was the village as a peaceful, serene, clean, and uh, a, you know, ideal place to live in. You know, when we we are living in urban areas, and we think. You know, rural areas are pristine, you know, everything is green, natural and all that stuff. But I think one of the important things which I felt was this sort of toxicity is all pervasive in rural areas as well. Whilst in urban areas we have different issues of toxicity, but in the rural areas it's the issues of chemicals, large uh, water bodies are contaminated, food is contaminated, vegetables and the people. And the toxicity is also is permeating into the social structures in terms of the how toxicity you know when you talk about is metaphorically it's also dividing people dividing people in terms of how people have access people have access to better resources better loans and better healthcare facilities i think it's more fractured and uh, than what i had imagined before i went and started living in the village and but that apart i think uh, there's a lot of uh, impact of modernization. The farmers, the number of farmers are decreasing. Not many younger generation want to be farmers anymore. So it's something which they ask, why should I be you know, producing food for others? Well, I'm missing out on what you guys are having fun in the cities. You know, urban life is better and I'm bound to my farm because of being a farmer. and not many young girls want to marry the farmers also. So that's also something which is socially very interesting where how farmers have, are placed in this structural hierarchy of caste, class, and Indian context. So that was one of the important things which, you know, which also hit me when, when I went to the field. I was aware of it, but until you live there and then try and experience, you face this and you wouldn't understand that. It's the complex societies and they're not as green and serene as we thought. 
And our last question for you today is, what is one thing outside of the world of public health that you've been thinking about recently? Hmm. I think that's really a tough question. <laughs> I think public health, I feel, is all pervasive. Uh, I think it's a, one of the soup pots where you have many ingredients, many disciplines, a confluence of many thoughts and uh, disciplines coming together. And that actually is uh, cutting across most of my my sort of a, uh, work across these last 20 years in both development sectors and academia. But of late, you know, uh, one of the one of these things which is exciting me is um, to strengthen the interface between various disciplines which are contributing to public health. Because again, that I can't say it is beyond public health as a thing, but I think academia is one in one in 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 a sense which builds this connections between the disciplines is something which is beyond public health but at the same time I want I was talking to uh, I had a wonderful meetings with your faculty here uh, with Professor uh, Dean Professor Parker and other colleagues and uh, and I thought you know the confluence of the experiences and getting people together is a best way to create solutions and for us in the lower middle income countries, the issue is with these sort of collaborations and connections, it's easy to not to reinvent the wheel. We can learn and cross-learning, cross-fertilization of ideas happen if there is collaborations. And then collaborations is something which is beyond public health. It could be in any discipline. But I think that's a way of uh, global north and global south as I would call something called global where you have a mixture of global and local knowledges coming together to solve the world problems and I think one of the motto of uh, you know global public health in, in, in the school here I found is very impressive is uh, your health is our health is it health is something which is you know of every one of us so I think this idea of confluence between different disciplines within the public health and beyond public health and also of various collaborators across the global south global north and it would be a respectful collaborations and cross-learning i think would we would learn a lot from each other and we all will be in a better place to solve the problems we face in public health or any other you know sphere of social life and our lives and cultures is there anything that we missed that you think we should be talking about? Mm. One thing I thought could be about the public health course, you know, masters in public health course, students, what could be... I also coordinate the public health program back in India. Mm. And you might screen a little bit closer to oh, Okay. So, public health, is, as I said, is an emerging discipline in Indian context. And... Uh, Public Health Foundation of India and Indian Institute of Public Health, which I'm part of, has been making a lot of efforts to uh, mainstream public health in both academia and also getting public health uh, practice as a or public health cadre within government. I think that is something which uh, I thought you know I could also add to what I've been uh, speaking, and that is important in Indian context because. 
I think prevention is better than cure any day. And uh, initial years, there was a lot of effort on strengthening the tertiary medical care within Indian context. And we have still have a lot of gap in the human resources uh, or medical or health professionals uh, versus the population. But there's, there is a human resources gap. But I think more than strengthening tertiary resources, I think it's important to have an investment in prevention and strengthening community-based efforts to address health by themselves. And in their process, I think public health as a course, and also public health cadre, which Public Health Foundation of India has been advocating with the state and central governments in India, you know, would make a lot of uh, value addition. And I think that is a way forward where people are aware of the larger challenges, health challenges, they take better care of themselves and their communities and the social and structural environmental factors and determinants which influence their health. I think that sort of a public health movement, if you can create among the communities, create that sort of movement among the civil society organizations and create a public health professionals through academic strengthening academic courses is something which I thought is important in the context of uh, India where we are going ahead in you know strengthening our public health curriculum and courses and the cadre thank you awesome well thank you for your time today it was really exciting getting to know about all of your efforts overall and kind of get to see these big threads that we're finding in global public health like you talk about our health is your health that kind of thing so thank you so much for coming on the podcast today we really appreciate your time here thank you ian and thank you steve for having me over here and enjoyed my conversation and all the best with your careers and studies in life thank you I hope you all enjoyed the episode. It's interesting to see rural life in another context, another country, and to see some of the environmental issues that we deal with here in Iowa, such as environmental contagion by pesticides in the water and the struggles of people growing up and staying in rural locations as they enter the workforce. It's important to continually think about workers' rights in a global sense because it's not just our country that it has issues in labor. Let me know what you thought about this episode or what you think about these thoughts that I just had. You can let us know about what um, you can let us know at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. That's cph-g-r-a-d-a-m-b-a-s-s-a-d-o-r at uiowa.edu. All right, lastly, before we go, I just want to give you all some updates about our winter schedule. So we're not going to be releasing an episode next week um, on account of the holiday, but we will be releasing our holiday special the week after. Please stay tuned for that one. It's going to be a little bit different than what you all are used to, but I think you all are really going to enjoy it. We had a ton of fun making it, and we're so excited to be able to share it with you. As always, you can find us on Facebook at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. We're on iTunes and Spotify as well as the University of Iowa College of Public Health. And that is it for this week. 
This episode of From the Front Row was hosted by Steve Sonia and Ian Bukta. This episode was produced by Ian Bukta. Our guest today was Dr. Nanda Kishori. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Thank you to Sophie Switzer for helping to coordinate this interview. Music for this episode was Skater by Pavel Svenchensev and The Quiet Solitude by Dmitry Rodionov, both from MelodyLoops.com. All right, for the end here, I'm going to try to emulate Oge. See you next week.